Kings, continued Calanthe, divide people into two categories, those they order around and those they buy, because they adhere to the old and banal truth that everyone can be bought. Everyone. It's only a question of price. The Honorable Ravix of Forhorn, er, I mean, Geralt the Witcher, is hired for a most unusual job, one he does not even understand at first, especially given he's told vaguely of a monster, but also told he will not need to carry any weapons while pretending to be the aforementioned Lord Ravix of Forhorn. On top of that, he's to sit right next to the queen herself, Calanthe, a.k.a. the Lioness of Sintra. At least he gets an explanation of the occasion itself. Princess Pavetta is turning fifteen, and, as is the custom, contenders for her hand have turned up in their dozens. Queen Calanthe wants her to marry someone from Skaviga. An alliance with the islanders would mean a lot to us. Why them? Those they're allied with aren't attacked as often as others. A good reason. Geralt perceives that his role involving or involves fulfilling her wish with regards to an alliance with Skellig, and assumes the queen wants him to keep to kill one or more people. He's Partly right. Kill? Yes. People? Well, let's not forget he was told a monster was involved. The supposition that I mistake your trade for that of a hired thug has piqued me greatly. Except, Geralt, that I belong to that select group of rulers who know exactly what witches do and how they ought to be employed. On the other hand, if someone kills as efficiently as you do, even though not for money... He shouldn't be surprised if people credit him with being a professional in that field. She is not eager to explain the nature of this monstrous threat, but she is eager for him to obey. She reminds him of her authority and reputation and her ability to compensate him in a generous manner. Again, it's only a question of price, but she demands a specific result. The banquet progresses, suitors and guests arrive and dine and discuss battles. The bagpipes drone, a baron named Kudkudak does a variety of incredibly accurate animal impressions, and Geralt realizes Calanthe is as formidable a personality as she is a queen. There's no court mage in Sintra, but the druid Mousak has come with the delegation from Skellig, and he takes particular notice of the conversation between Geralt and Calanthe. He's one of the few people who knows that Lord Forhorn is actually Geralt of Rivia, as they know each other from prior encounters and seem to be on good terms. They manage to communicate surreptitiously throughout the banquet as they slowly realize something magical is afoot. Soon enough, Princess Pavetta is presented. Many of the suitors are entranced, but Geralt is still focused on figuring out what he's meant to fight against. In addition to clarifying that she wants her daughter to marry Krakan Crate of Skellig, she hopes at least they produce a child of the quality of her suitor Iced Terseek, Krakan Crate's uncle. She informs him who the enemy is with a single word. Destiny. Your Majesty, he said quietly, not to repeat what I said earlier about killing people, you do realize that a sword alone will not defeat destiny. I do. Calanthe turned her head away. A witcher is also necessary. As you see, I took care of that. She also reveals that his sword is within his grasp, strapped to the back of her throne. Though he still does not understand, he agrees to do her bidding. With that, she moves to speak with other guests. Mousak the druid continues to seem concerned. Princess Pavetta has not raised her eyes yet throughout the night, and soon enough a message arrives for the queen, one she is not happy to hear. 
A moment later, heavy footsteps, each accompanied by the clang of metal striking the floor, could be heard over the hum at the table. Everyone raised their heads and turned. A man fully encased in spiked armor enters the room. He announces himself as Lord Urchion of Erlenwald. But despite it being a breach of decorum, he claims he cannot remove his helmet until midnight due to a vow. Then he recounts a most interesting tale. Fifteen years ago, he announced loudly, your husband, King Rognar, lost his way while hunting in Erlenwald. Wandering around the pathless tracts, he fell from his horse into a ravine and sprained his leg. He lay at the bottom of the gully and called for help, but the only answer he got was the hiss of vipers and the howling of approaching werewolves. He would have died without the help he received. The king offered a reward for saving his life. I asked him to promise me whatever he had left at home without knowing or expecting it. The king swore it would be so, and on his return to the castle, he found you, Calanthe, in labor. Yes, your majesty, I waited for fifteen years, and the interest on my reward has grown. Today, I look at the beautiful Pavetta and see that the wait has been worth it. Gentlemen and knights, some of you have come to Sintra to ask for the princess's hand. You have come in vain. From the day of her birth, by the power of the royal oath, the beautiful Pavetta has belonged to me. The reaction to this declaration shocks the attendees. Men like Iced, Mousesack, and Kudkudak believe in keeping promises made and move to verify that this promise was made. While younger men like Crack and Crate and Rain Farm of Atre react with threats and aggression. Calanthe herself does not seem inclined to relent either, nor does she outright refuse. Geralt's Witcher medallion buzzes intensely, indicating the presence of magic. The princess, her bearing no longer demure, looks only at Mausak and Geralt, the two men in the room sensitive to magic. Geralt also notices the queen give a command to a page who is so confused by the command, she appears to have to repeat it. Urchin argues his case convincingly, and Calanthe admits her husband admitted this arrangement on his deathbed. Despite this, she is intent on avoiding the marriage and continues to maneuver. Under the guise of doing what's best for the kingdom, she declines to take blame, while suggesting Lord Urchin has cruelly and deeply insulted the honor of the other knightly suitors. Ice points out that this will lead to bloodshed, and indeed, Calanthe is trying to provoke them into killing the helmeted stranger. Geralt rises and speaks, and Urchin takes it as a challenge. The feel of magic in the room grows even greater, though most remain unaware. But Geralt is not challenging Urchin. He's actually making a play to avoid bloodshed. His true identity is revealed, and he claims Urchin can't simply claim the girl. She has to agree. His credibility on such matters is boosted greatly by Mousesack, who reveals that Geralt himself is a child of surprise, and familiar both with this sort of promise and the force of destiny behind it. The chimes of midnight ring, and Calanthe reminds Lord Urchin that his vow no longer binds him. It's another stratagem. The confused page from earlier had been ordered to move the clock forward, forcing Lord Urchin to reveal his identity ahead of real midnight. Were it truly midnight, he would look like a human knight. But it is not midnight, and due to a curse, he looks quite a bit more like a hedgehog knight. Calanthe assumed that exposing him would cause her daughter to reject him, but she was wrong. Pavetta and Lord Urchin, whom she knows as Dooney, have been seeing each other for some time already. Calanthe had learned of their meetings and, of course, knew of the promise from her dying husband, hence her hiring of Geralt in advance, expecting he would slay the hedgehog creature. But as we know, Geralt would never consider a cursed human a monster. But if Pavetta simply refuses to marry him, that point is moot and no killing will be necessary. 
But shocking, everyone, Pavetta declares she will go with Dooney and marry him. And Geralt feels the force echo her declaration. No doubt Mouse Sack does as well. Calanthe, out of moves but still unwilling to lose, resorts to brute force, ordering her guards to attack. And the younger angry suitors are happy to join in, especially after the queen goaded them. As the forces of magic continue to swirl, Dooney defends himself, while a few take his side, including Kud Kudak, Iced, and most importantly, Geralt himself. Though principle is on their side, numbers are not, and they are overwhelmed. As Dooney is about to be killed, Pavetta, in grave fear for him, reveals herself as a source, with a capital S. Though she herself was surely unaware she could do... this... The room turns into a maelstrom, with people and tables and food flying everywhere. It's pure primordial force, the druid yelled at the racket and clatter. She's got no control over it. <laughs> the power within Pavetta is overwhelming, and at first, even Mousesack and Geralt's combined powers cannot break the spell. It's only when Kudkudak presses on the bagpipes while making a horrendous animal noise simultaneously that Pavetta is sufficiently distracted for them to try again. This time it succeeds. The strange green magic recedes and everyone slowly begins to pick themselves up. Calanthe, after a meeting, at last relents. Having agreed to marry Iced herself, which gives her the alliance she needed through her own hand instead of her daughter's, this has the bonus side effect of breaking Dooney's curse, which apparently required him to be given a child surprise by marriage. Or just given a child surprise. Since she got the specific result she required, Calanthe rewards Geralt with her emerald necklace, and Dooney insists he must reward Geralt as well, as his life was saved by his interference and other actions. He pays it forward by claiming the law of surprise himself, and fittingly, Pavetta turns out to be pregnant, which Geralt was already pretty sure of. He wants this child of hers to be a witcher. Though the demands of destiny have just been fulfilled, new demands have been established. Geralt is now tied to this unborn child by those very same forces. The question of price turned out to have a shockingly high, costly answer. Hello and welcome to episode four of the podcast, A Surprise. Really, really excited to be here. Today, we are going to be covering a question of price. And boy, you're going to hear us react and be super excited. This is one of our favorite stories. But before we get into the breakdown, I would love, love, love to introduce my co-host today, Mikalantha. <laughs> you know. Very happy that we're discussing this story because it really is one of my favorites. I'm Crack on Kyle today. We've tried to come up with names for every pod. And then we have Aziz Sack. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm really excited about this one too. This story is so much fun and it's, it's a lot different than some of the other ones for a lot of reasons. So yeah, let's do it. Before we uh, move into the podcast, we just want to thank a few people who have supported us on Anchor, Aziz. We've had a few people throwing us some coins to the, the podcasters. Yeah, thanks to Mara, Ryan B, Sam D, and James G, our first four Anchor supporters, and we are very grateful for that. Of course, if you do want to support the podcast, you can do so by hitting the support button. But if you want to support the podcast in other ways, feel free to leave us a rating or a review. But now, it's time to get into the podcast. This one is... Not only really unique in the way that it introduces all sorts of new characters, but... I think we would all agree that this is probably the most important short story connecting to the main plot points. There's like seven different viewpoints on the law, surprise, 
you know, recurring themes, love across borders and uh, destiny and things that we're going to talk about. But uh, overall, I really, really love this one. What about you guys? I love this story. Um, we had a poll in our Facebook group, I think, a while back about, I mean, it, m- it might have actually been yesterday, but time doesn't <laughs> mean anymore. So it was some time ago where, you know, people were like, what's your favorite short story? And like, a question of price was somehow not winning. And I commented like, hello, it's obviously a question of price. And I don't remember, but I think it might have pulled ahead. This is to me, Sapkowski at his like, curious and funny and portentous best. And, you know, we, we said of the first story, you know, The Witcher, that it really builds a world in a very incredible way. And this story builds the politics and the characters in, I think, very effective way. Yeah, again, it's it's hilarious. <laughs> and I think it's one of those great stories because every time you read it, you find something a little bit new. Like I had not at all picked up on Calanthe moving the time of the midnight bell, <laughs> you know, with the page, but we see it right there. And it's it's so delightful to find these little things. I, I you know, I've been reading through the through the books and I or, you know, the, the stories in this volume, and I wasn't particularly impressed from a feminist point of view, um, as I've expressed, like there are definitely things to see there, but there are also a lot of disappointments. And then Calanthe just like storms onto the scene. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe these words are coming out of your mouth. And it was just like a complete reversal of expectation and nothing's perfect. I still have critiques and I'll, I'll have critiques of later stories in the book. But I, I think this is a real, like a step forward for the whole series and, and really establishing what Sapkowski is capable of as a short story writer and as a deep, long, epic books, you know, ahead of time planter of ideas as well. Right on. As far as my takes, I, I'm a f- similar attitude about it. I love the story. I've, I've read it several times. And just like both of y'all said, every time you read it, you find something new. I mean, I found something new at like four in the morning last night that I, that I was like super excited to add to the notes. So I'm sure that'll probably happen again in like a week and be like, oh, man, I missed something else. But that's the nature of, of stories that have great detail and a lot of depth to them. This is like a fire hose of characters that matter later compare, as compared to what was there before. There's so many of these characters that return. There's backstories with a lot of these characters that get explored. So not only is it a fantastic story on its own, but the more you get into the Witcher world, the more you appreciate how much this story matters. And I think that causes it to grow in esteem even more once you get through the series. Because I think all of us liked it the first time through, but after finishing the books, it, it just looks even stronger. One could just sit here and gush for quite a while about this story. The level of intrigue and implied backstory, let alone the supernatural elements, which always create uh, an element of mystery, means some explanations are in order. For example, some people would want to know, why does Geralt step in to defend Urchin and ditto Eistin Kudkudak? And I think it's pretty straightforward. They're guys who are very honorable, and they, they believe that this promise was made, and this queen is uh, going reneging on her promise, and it's a really big deal when a, a person of authority doesn't follow through on a promise. Kudkudak has a really excellent line. They're talking about fairy tales and legends, and he says, the most legendary thing of all was the time when kings and queens would keep their word. <laughs> it's a really great own that Calanthe has to kind of reckon with um, as he's confronted with it. 
Yeah, I mean, I I really love the idea that like the politics and the magic intertwine almost inseparably. Um, and I think that's really part of why some of the stuff that happens is complicated because Geralt is not really interested in the politics, right? Like he's, the whole story, this is again kind of one of those stories where Geralt meets someone new or newish to him and, and they're like, Geralt, let me tell you everything. From his point of view, it can be complicated to see why, you know, some people behave the way they do. But I think that Ace is definitely driven by, well, Ace is like the only good man in this chapter. (laughs) 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 As a general rule, the men in this chapter are disappointing. Um, (laughs) Can you explain why? Is it because she's 15 and they've been... (laughs) Yes. Well, that's a big part of it. I'm not going to lie. And and Dooney's been courting her since... 13 she was 13 <laughs> oh my god yeah princess but i think it definitely is an emphasis on the she's turning 15 and we need to see her married off and then you find out like oh she's pregnant already <laughs> this is great courting her for a year also kudkadak turns out to be like a pretty decent guy but you know the way he's introduced which is like my wife's gonna die so i can marry this hot little chick you know it's like, mm, I'm not into that. Um, he starts yeah. off bad, yeah. And then and then and then, Kal- and then Kalantha's like, maybe you should take care of your wife. Feed her a little bit more, fatten her up, and maybe you know. Tell her some I, jokes. I, I thought that was that was such a great takedown. Yeah. yeah, it was. Kalantha's like, uh, no, I'm not letting you near my daughter. <laughs> Which is funny because she actually asks Ace if he's there to court Veta, and he's like, Lady. No. You know what I'm here for. (laughs) She can't can't fulfill my needs. (laughs) So Ace is pretty great. He's one of the people who definitely has like a handle on the situation and is kind of keeping his compass pointed um, at the North Star. That's not a sex reference. It's just an unfortunate coincidence. (laughs) Aziz, you had a cool reference to Iced, like the the inversion of the evil stepmother trope. Yeah, evil stepmother trope is so common that if you really look at Iced as the inversion of that, as the good stepfather, it's a dead ringer, dead center hit, whether, you know, TV version, book version, he's just a really good person. And he treats... Everyone, he seems to treat everyone well. He treats, he upholds traditions and, and the, the, the upright parts of traditions. He's honest and brave. And yeah, he's, he's almost over the top how good he is. That's, that's on purpose because evil stepmothers are in those, uh, in these stories are often quite over the top themselves. So he has to keep pace. <laughs> King Rognar died some time ago and the queen doesn't want another husband. Our Lady Calanthe is wise and just, but a king is a king. Whoever marries the princess will sit on the throne, and we want a tough, decent fellow. They have to be found on the islands. They're a hard nation. Yeah, because they want a tough, strong king, which you can see why they would. Calanthe has managed to subvert that against them. She has to basically marry a man and let him sit on the throne. But if the man isn't worthy, she doesn't have to marry him. So she's kind of used that exception to hold on to power by simply not getting married. Before the story, something we'll talk about later in another episode when we get into more detail on her and just the the Sintra and history, things like that. 
There are some things she did as a child that maybe turned off other suitors reputation-wise, even though she's beautiful and powerful and strong, that curbed some of the marriage opportunities for her, which you, you wonder if that was intentional because she didn't want to marry certain people. And by eliminating certain people from contention, she was able to keep power even longer because she was able to delay getting married and just continue to delay, delay, delay. And finally, she married Rogner. And, well, there is some significant evidence that... Not only Rogner tried to kill Calanthe, but Calanthe tried to kill Rogner. And for all we know, this time that Rogner was, got injured in this hunting accident may have even been Calanthe's doing. <laughs> <laughs> Honestly, I love Calanthe. I would not want to be married to her. <laughs> <laughs> by a combination of pointing out the weaknesses in her suitors and by delaying and by turning off other suitors, she's managed to hold on to power. So... It touches into one of the main themes of this story, which is misdirection. Misdirection, both from the narrative and from the characters and from expectations. Just a lot of misdirection. You're constantly thinking one thing only to find out it's another, whether it's what time it really is, whether it's who's who, or whether it's Calanthe's intentions, or the first line of the book or of the story, which is a knife was at the witcher's throat. And it's like, oh, he's getting a shave. It, that sets the tone for the whole story is those kind of tricks like that. And that's part of what makes it so great to reread as you get to approach it different ways each time. Calantha is not your average queen, right? We, we think of a queen and we think feminine and she's very aggressive and strong-headed in her thoughts. And we see her play the game like, look at her shut down Kudkadak. And then let Ice kind of wiggle his way in there. She, she's playing the game and she's smart. You know what I mean? She's observing everything from her, from her place in the throne room when the feast is going down and kind of just seeing things unfold, seeing what maybe a suitor may emerge, you know, even though she had kind of already had this thing pre-planned. One other thing about Sintran politics that's important and to understand, especially if, you're, if your mind is rooted in other fantasy stories like, say, Game of Thrones, since we keep bringing it up, the, the monarchy system is different here in that it's more of a later monarchy period where the farther you go in human history, especially European, let's keep focused on European history because obviously it changes when you go from location to location. But generally speaking, monarchy, no matter where it began, lost power over the centuries. The monarchs very slowly lost absolute power. And eventually they started having things like parliaments and councils and things like that, that they were answerable to. That's certainly the case here. Calanthe is basically being forced. This event of Pavetta's hand is something that she was sort of forced politically into. If she had it her way, she would have probably delayed even longer, but it goes to show the power level. She does not, she's not an absolute power monarch, but if she marries Ice Terseek or has the Alliance of the Skelligans, which she does get, it does effectively make her more powerful because she has military backing behind her authority. Big military backing in this case. So that's part of why she really wants this particular, well, this particular service that she wants from Gail. She wants this result <laughs> one way or another. Which kind of ties into one of our main themes in our craft section here, which is consent. Yes, it's a great move for her to go with ice, but it's also a, cons a consensual thing. Pavetta has a lot less until the whole Urchion Dooney thing happens, right? Yeah, well, I think consent is a really important idea. You know, we've, we've talked about it before um, in the stories, but we're, we are kind of talking about a woman in terms of Calanthe who doesn't really care for the consent of others. <laughs> <laughs> what what does a woman who is who wants to be queen who should technically be queen but because of the laws can't rule on her on her own 
Like you can understand how someone like that would use every scrap of power um, and would nullify the consent of other people. I mean, she's just bossing people around the whole, the whole like story. Like her daughter. Like her daughter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And like, you know, I, and, and the fact that she, like, she has to concede to the idea that like, oh, well, you know, Princess Pavetta has to get married. And she's like, well, okay, so let me, let me maneuver this so that I get the exact outcome that I want. At the same time, though, Calanthe's consent turns out to be less important than Pavetta's. When I was reading this the first time, I was like, oh my god, how could we just have this magic system where, like, a girl is just, like, promised to a man and, like, magically and that's destiny and that's supposed to be a good thing? And then Geralt comes in clutch and he's like, aha, only if she agrees. <laughs> and I'm like, yes, okay, cool. So, yeah, and that, that consent is actually what kind of takes precedence. It's sort of Calanthe's concession to that consent in a- allowing. I mean, she, let's get real. Like, she probably didn't really have a choice. But, like, in, I guess, finding it in herself to, to permit it, because I do think she is genuine at the end, that is what frees Dooney of the curse. So you have a lot of control and consent is, is a really interesting issue in the story. And, and a theme also through her conversation with Geralt, because it's kind of like, well, if I pay you, does that mean that you have consented to this thing that I'm asking or telling you to do? And it, because it is a question of price in the end, right? It also connects to our uh, theme, Love Across Borders, that we spoke about in the Novellan chapter, right? We see Novellan as this beast, and we have Verena, and there's this odd relationship going there. But clearly, Pavetta fell in love with Dooney despite all of these things. And this kind of ties in with the law of surprise and the whole consent argument. The idea of true love breaking a curse. True love. Yeah, she feels that she has consented. But with the idea of destiny in this, um, and the idea of kind of let's just say, big, mysterious forces at work, you know, we kind of do have to wonder how much of her consent is her own as opposed to, you know, and, and that that is something that Siri will grapple with a lot about her her destiny versus her own will and, and how they go hand in hand. You know, I don't think Sapkowski ever answers this question, which is probably a good thing because I don't think it has an answer, but it's really interesting to see how he grapples with it. Mostly, well, not mostly, but a lot through female characters. Kind of like politics and the supernatural being combined, it's hard to describe the curse theme, which has been in every single story so far. We had a curse in the first story with the Striga curse. The second story, obviously, Novellan is cursed. The third story, Renfrey might be cursed, but there's certainly the curse of the Black Sun, blah, blah, blah. Then this story, blatant example of a curse again. But also the, the idea gets a little inverted or at least discussed differently. It's both a supernatural idea and it's a destiny idea and it's just a recurring theme as far as something that Sapkowski seems to like to, to put as a big part of his world make prominent. But what exactly is a curse outside of the magical element? Can destiny be a curse? I guess is my question. For example, from Calanthe's point of view, knowing this child surprise promise was coming due could probably be viewed as a curse on her progeny. Like, she could probably see it that way. Maybe not technically a curse, but in terms of how she perceives it, it's basically the same thing. Well, yeah, it's kind of like the idea of, like, the mechanism that would break the curse is also laying the curse on Calanthe slash Pavetta. This is really interesting, too. How many times destiny has been referenced before this chapter uh, in short story? And it is only twice. And this time it's capitalized with a D. And that's a pretty big deal. Right? Like when, as far as like when an author does that, it's, it's a signal that this is going to be important later on. There's going to be some sort of payoff. 
right? And I think that that's something that we have to pay attention to, especially since Siri is the child of surprise. And then, you know, uh, the whole law of surprise thing with Geralt, we see that his life has been affected by the same thing. So there's this cycle of things happening that are all connected that Sapkowski is laying out with destiny. I love the way the politics versus magic plays into that. She has this great quote where Geralt's like, you're asking for the near impossible. She's like, dude, if it was nearly impossible, I'd do it myself. And, you know, so there's this idea that like, she really is going toe to toe against law, against natural law. And that idea is reflected when, you know, it, when the, when she tries to reject this idea of destiny and all the, the men around her are like, oh, whoa, whoa, you're literally breaking our social contract right here. And like, if that breaks, then we have no guarantee of your behavior and you have no guarantee of ours. So this, this idea of destiny as both like a very practical, like a law of nature and as a magical one is something that I think plays really powerfully through the chapter. Yeah, and that's that's why they there's so much aggression. Like you said, this is that was really well said, Mikal, because the older Skelligans, they understand the importance of maintaining these this the sense of honor and justice and truth because it affects all of society, where the younger Skelligans are just really just concerned about their own honor, what they can get. And uh of course someone like Geralt and Mausak, those guys are even older. And Calanthe is not old. I mean she's like 34, I think, in this story, something like that. So fairly young for a ruler and especially one who's already been in power 20 years. So, yeah. One interesting thing that you mentioned, Mikal, is contracts. We have Kalanta trying to push one thing onto Geralt and he's like, listen, like, this is not the code of the Witcher. And we, we've kind of talked about this in previous episodes, like the, the code of ethics of the Witcher. The Witcher's trying to stay out of all things political and magic. And, and it's so interesting that we have the point of view of Geralt because he 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 accepts this is like, this is kind of an important thing. Look at how many people are respecting the law of surprise, right? And he's like, I'm not here to have you push your destiny on me, what you think your destiny is. He's like, I'm not, that's not what I'm for hire for. And he still gets pulled into it regardless. So it's like, wow, is is this like really part of Geralt's destiny? Like he still ends up in this situation where, you know, he, he makes this contract for Siri. You know, so I find that really interesting, the, the perspective of Geralt and the whole situation, because we kind of ha- have uh, the dueling perspectives of Kalantha, who's really trying to push her agenda. And then Geralt's like, listen, you can't just push all of this stuff on people because you have power. And we see it backfire in her face, right? Because uh, Pavetta just says yes right away. Yeah, and I think Geralt, you know, uh, going back to why he sticks around in the first place, I do think it's he feels the pull of destiny. And I think he has some sense that something is up because right from the beginning, it's like, you don't have to stay here. Like, yeah, they took your swords, but like, you're definitely stronger than this guy, than than Haxo. Like you could, you could leave if you wanted to leave. And, you know, again, just like his, the exterminator versus assassin thing that we were talking about, or policeman thing that we were talking about last, in the last episode, Calanthe is like, oh, I'm, I'm going to use you as both, you know, like it's, it fits, it's fine. Like I know uh, it, it totally tracks and Geralt never, like he agrees, but he doesn't ever really like agree. I really do think that that's why when she goes down, he's like, okay, this is why I'm here. Cool. It's kind of like when you have a conversation with someone and you just have to nod in agreement. Like you don't, like you, you just have to sit there and listen. That's kind of how it felt like it was for Geralt a little bit. <laughs> I mean, say yes and I will pay you and I'll, this will be awesome or I'll torture you to death. Yeah. <laughs> His options were limited. That's yeah. so good. <laughs> 
So it's it's neat too, a little bit more about curses uh, as far as the recurring theme and such. You mentioned it, Kyle, the, the true love thing, the unlovable but must find love maybe would be another way to put it or a similar way to put it because that's certainly what like the priestess of, of the lion-headed spider thought that turning Novellan into a bear creature would mean no one would ever love him. And similar to the spell put on Dooney here, who's going to love a hedgehog man? That cer- certainly seems hedge to tie knight. in. Yeah, <laughs> hedge knight. And so Calanthe tried really hard to avert destiny. And in, a, in attempting to do so, she basically reset the whole thing. She didn't actually escape this child of surprise promise. But in trying to, a new one was put on her grandchild instead. So she really, it's another situation. It's kind of like lesser evil, where if Geralt had just done nothing, things might have gone a lot better. Ditto Calanthe here. By trying to battle destiny, she made, she just, made her own problems worse got more wrapped into destiny but on the other hand that's looking at things with hindsight and it would also be really out of character for Clanthy or Geralt to just do nothing (laughs) to sit back and just eh, let it play out yeah (laughs) yeah that's why I love Clanthy because I disagree with a lot of what she does and I do not think she's a good person and there are some things that happen later that I'm just like, holy shit, you're really not a good person. But I think you understand where she's coming from always. And you get why she's been driven to do a lot of the things, not everything maybe, but a lot of the things that she does. Should I, should I read the, the weird synopsis of Hans, my hedgehog? Yes, please. And first let's tell, let remind people that the word urchion is an old English slash medieval word that literally means hedgehog. So there you go. That's pretty straightforward. So yes, Kyle has Hans my hedgehog, which honestly I had not even heard of. It's from the Grim Fairy Tales, if anybody have heard of those. Oh, okay. It was brought up by, I believe, Ludmila, oh, cool. I believe is her name, and, and a couple of other people who are, are European friends who have brought this up. A wealthy but childless farmer wishes he had a child, even a hedgehog. He comes home to find that his wife has given birth to a baby boy that is a hedgehog from the waist up. They name him (laughs) Hans my Hedgehog. (laughs) (laughs) It's really hard to get through this without laughing. After eight years, Hans leaves his family riding a shod cockerel, which is a cock rooster, to seek his fortune. He goes off into the woods and watches over his donkeys and pigs. So that's kind of funny because we see all the different people acting like animals in this chapter. So that's pretty funny. A few years later, a lost king stumbles upon Hans after hearing him play beautifully on the bagpipes. Hans makes a deal with the king. He will show him the way home if the king promises to sign over whatever first comes to meet him upon his return. So we have the Rogner uh, Law of Surprise connection. Remember, Rogner uh, needed the help from Dooney, so that's the connection there. That's great. I'd never heard of that before. However, the king thinks Hans is illiterate and decides to trick him by writing an order that Hans should receive nothing. So this is kind of a little twist with Kalantha where she's going to try to, you know, backstab Dooney, even though she knows that there was agreement. You know, Kalantha kind of misleads everyone, invites everyone to the banquet, even though she knew about this before. Then they arrive at the kingdom. The king's daughter runs to greet him. So we have Pavetta and the Dooney connection. Previously, no one knows that they've had a relationship, and then it's revealed that they've been seeing each other for a while. And then the king tells her about the deal Hans tried to make and how he has tricked him. Unconcerned by the betrayal, Hans continues to tend to his animals in the forest. So a little bit of a change there, not an exact one for one. 
comparison. That's cool. So uh, a second lost king stumbles upon Hans and agrees to his deal. Upon his return, the second king's only daughter rushes out to greet him, and in doing so, becomes the property of Hans. Oh. For the sake of her father, the princess happily agrees to Hans's deal. So there's a little bit more that goes on here, but if you you can see the similarity oh, with the yeah. lost surprise, yeah. the, the the betrothal and all that. So this is based off the Brothers Grimm fairy tale. If y'all want to go check it out, I believe it's from 1815. It first started, but there's many variations of this. But yeah, so this is the fairy tale that Sapkowski um, that used kind of as the main construct for all the Dooney stuff, the Urchion of Erlenwald, the Pavetta love surprise stuff, and that's where that comes from. Oh yeah. I, I had no idea. I was just like, oh, this one is not based off of a fairy tale, but I guess it is. I, it's eighteen fifteen. It was uh, public. It was published in the Second Brothers Grimm called Kinder Kinder und Hausmarschen, Volume Two. It's actually a German tale told by Dorothea Wiemann, if I'm saying that correctly. So it's German. So close to Poland. But by by the way, Hans removes his hedgehog skin at one point. <laughs> it's like I'm just gonna remove my skin. <laughs> And it's so weird. So, yeah, you guys will have to go read the story for your own interpretation of that. But uh, it's kind of weird. This is really a weird story. It's so typical of fairy tales, especially old ones, (laughs) where they're just like humming along kind of like very like mild and and childlike. And all of a sudden something horrific like that happens, like all someone's entire skin is pulled off or something like that, which is also true of Cinderella, as we'll see in a minute. Last winter, Prince Frobrick, not being so gracious, tried to hire me to find Beauty, who, sick of his vulgar advances, had fled the ball, losing a slipper. It was difficult to convince him that he needed a huntsman and not a witcher. So, of course, the slipper is a recurring theme of Cinderella, but backing it up, Cinderella is way, way, way older as a story than most of the fairy tale references slash legends that we've reported on for example the hans the hedgehog hans my hedgehog you said was like 1815 mccall's going to talk about arthurian stuff which goes back to pretty far 500 a.d 600 a.d but you know dracula only goes back you know to the 1800s and snow white is also like 17th century but cinderella goes back so far that we don't even know how old it is it was it was reported on by the greek geographer Strabo around the turn of the millennium. So around the time of the, uh, when BC switched to AD, it was already an established story called Rhodopis. This character Rhodopis was a, a slave woman that grew to marry the Pharaoh of Egypt. When you hear of the term Cinderella story, which gets thrown around and from everything from sports to, well, stories like this, the idea is you go from the most humble beginnings to a royalty or to the top or from a loser to a winner. That's the more of the sports metaphor there. We're going from like the last place to first place, but there's versions, literally thousands, not exaggerating thousands of versions of the Cinderella story. Unlike again, these other references like Hans, my hedgehog is German. There's not versions of that told elsewhere around the world. As far as I know, at least not many ditto snow white. That story has been told in other ways, but it's mostly a European thing. Cinderella I couldn't find any examples in Africa, but it exists in all over Europe, all over Asia, all over the Middle East. There's Thousand and One, uh, the Arabian Nights tales have a Cinderella version. There's a Chinese version called Yi Zhan that was written in 860 AD. Oh, yeah, that one is Maltese really cool. Maltese version. 
Yeah, I'll describe. I should. T- I should briefly describe that when it's wa- it's wacky. Uh, per- there's a Persian version. There's an Arabic version. So ta- there's recurring themes are talking animals, the footwear thing, finding the person whose shoe the, the shoe fits, greatness gone unnoticed or, or undetected, and of course the evil stepmother slash evil sisters and the fairy godmother is also a, a, that was more of a later addition to the story, but it's become ubiquitous uh, in later tellings. We'll get back to the fairy godmother part because that pops up in a few different places, but. Yeah, the Chinese version, Yi Zhan, is funny. It's, uh, you have this, wo- this woman whose mother was killed by her evil stepmother, and uh, this, the woman is reincarnated as a fish, and the girl talks to the fish constantly and gets advice from it. Eventually, the evil stepmother kills the fish, but the bones have magic in them, and the bones grant the girl these special shoes and uh, garments of appropriate nature. It ends the same with the king, like going on a quest to find whose shoe uh, that was, etc. So this is an extremely old story with many different versions. You can see all these elements in this story. Tell us about the ending, Aziz. Don't skimp on so it. I forgot. Yeah, you're right. The ending of that story is that just it's very random. The, the, the princess marries this king, but then flying fish kill the stepmother and sisters. <laughs> they just come out of nowhere and kill the, the evil stepmother. Like, well, okay. <laughs> it's like, so you can see these recurring elements. The fairy godmother element is a little obscure in this version of the story in, in A Question of Price because there's no a- direct fairy godmother, but there is this power within within Pavetta that comes from elven magic, basically, and that sort of a fae influence, a fairy influence. She inherited these powers from her descendants, and it's sort of like, a, it's not, it's sort of like the same similar concept. Also, the idea of being helped, getting advice from, uh, being helped by her own mother. It's been inverted. Instead of her mother helping her, Pavetta's being stopped by her mother, but of course it doesn't work. Yeah, so this is the first story where the Arthurian legends kind of start to play a role in the Witcher universe. By the end of the series, they will be hugely important more important than I think even you would anticipate knowing that. So to me, the connections here are pretty strong to the poem Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, which comes from the mid-14th century. Uh, We don't know who wrote it. We don't know exactly what it's based on. Um, It kind of combines a bunch of different lore um, and things like that, but it is one of the most famous surviving Arthurian stories. So to me, this has a couple of references. Briefly, the story of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight starts when a Green Knight shows up at Arthur's court and challenges anyone in the court to chop off his head and then basically go back to the Green Knight in a year and submit to the same challenge so he will have his own head cut off in a year and a day. And nobody really steps up except Gawain, and Gawain chops off his head, and then he's like, cool, see you, and the, the, the Green Knight picks his head off the floor and leaves and says, I'll see you in a year and a day. So in a year and a day, Gawain heads off on a journey to seek the Green Knight. He has a lot of trials, and one of those trials is a woman, um, and I believe he sleeps in her bower. She basically keeps trying to seduce him, and he he resists that. And I believe the woman turns out to be the Green Knight's lady, her, his wife, uh, in the end. I'm, I might be getting some different versions mixed up here, so if, if I'm completely wrong, I apologize. <laughs> but basically, he asks for a sash, the sash that the lady wears, her girdle, as kind of a like a representation of his passing of this. 
So to quote, I hold thee here absolved. That's of like doing of not of almost not, you know, of almost living with my wife and purged as clean this morn as thou hast ne'er done wrong since the day thou wert born. This girdle hemmed with gold, Sir Knight, I give to thee. Tis green as as this my robe, as thou right well mayst see. Uh, and then at the end of the Witcher story, Geralt asks Calanthe, he says, I ask for your green sash, Calanthe. May it always remind me of the color of your eyes and the most beautiful queen I have ever known. And Calanthe gives him her uh, necklace, her emerald necklace instead. And then later in the Green Knight, at the very end, the Knights of the Round Table all take the green sash as their kind of mark um, to kind of honor Gawain and his stalwartness, his truth. So to me, I really see Geralt as the Gawain figure and Dooney as the Green Knight figure in this story. It's not at all a perfect matchup by any means, but it is, you know, you do have kind of the knight who is called to fight and you do have the intruder, you know, throwing down a challenge. They obviously end up fighting on the same side, uh, but it does, you know, in the end of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, there definitely is like parody between them. And one of Dooney's last speeches um, is very much like, oh, I was so wrong. I totally misjudged you, dude. <laughs> and so, yeah, I think this is a really interesting way to introduce the idea of Arthurian legend, um, which are also very deeply bound in destiny with Arthur's death and Mordred and all of these, all of these different factors. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I have to say about Sir Gawain and the Green Knight. So I noticed something that I accidentally skipped over that was reminded to us by Maura mentioned Rumpelstiltskin, and there's the mention of Rumpelstelt in this, in this tale. It's very brief, and that's just a kind of a nod. I've become convinced that the witch's profession is worthy of respect. You protect us not only from the evil lurking in the darkness, but also from that which lies within ourselves. It's a shame there are so few of you. Calanthe smiled. For the first time that night, Geralt was inclined to believe it was genuine. Yeah, that last bit about, but also from that which lies within ourselves, that's a really powerful line because that is what Geralt was after. The whole time Geralt was trying to avoid bloodshed. Yes, that's such a great line. He was doing the opposite of what Calanthe hired him for. She wanted him to kill, and he decided to do everything he could to avoid killing, except for, well, he had to kill some guards. (laughs) 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 And he only killed the ones who were about to kill Dooney. So he didn't... It's funny how everyone was either trying to kill Dooney or trying to not be killed, because (laughs) no one wanted to take on Iced. No one wanted to take on Geralt. And as far as like crack on crate, people were just trying to stop him. Like Kudkudak didn't attack him. He just kicked a chair into his, like knocked him over. You know, they're like, (laughs) it was all like, well, we don't really want to kill each other, but we got to stop this somehow. So they're very just like, oh, well, (laughs) there's a little bit of a clue to Calanthe's youth. When it becomes clear that Pavetta's pregnant, Mousesack says, Today's youth, muttered Mousesack. The apple doesn't fall far. And Clint says, What's that? And he's like, Oh, nothing. Druidy. <laughs> Him and his druidy ways. So Mousesack obviously is much older and has been around. So he, he was an adult before Calanthe was even born. Aha, so I, a poor witcher, am to face down a destiny which is stronger than the royal will. A witcher fighting destiny. What irony. Yes, Geralt, what irony. Never mind, your majesty. It seems the service you demand borders on the impossible. If it bordered on the possible, Calanthe drawled, 
I would manage it myself. I wouldn't need the famous Geralt of Rivia. <laughs> Such a great she's line. So, and she has the strength to back it up. Like when they start singing that song about her and she's just like, oh yeah, that was the time 3,000 people died because I wanted to protect my financial interests. You know, and it's just like she she is, again, not a good person, but a really effective leader. And, you yeah. know, knows what she wants and kind of does what she needs to get that it could be very cowing to, you know, to be forced into this role, uh, which I think is maybe something we could talk about Pavetta because we really don't know much about Pavetta or how she feels about all this other than like, she's in love with Juni, the end. Yeah. But Calanthe is so larger than life. Uh, to me, she she's one of those characters that just like stands out as a giant in, in the whole series. In our in our shared document, Mikal put, Queen! <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I literally spit out my water. I was like, oh my God. <laughs> so just a quick, quick couple of words about a few other characters. We mostly talked about Iced, but I just want to point out a few like character details of him. He's the brother of the king, King Bran. Hey, King Bran. Well, Bran means king. Yeah, there you go. King, king. <laughs> he's the uncle to Kraken Crate, and he's also the Jarl of Skellige, which one of those words that has multiple meanings. When... Jarl Krakencrate, he has the title Jarl because he's a chieftain. Whereas the Jarl of Skellig as an official title means the commander of the armed forces of Skellige. They have a united, like a, like a first head general, and that's him. So basically when the Skellige armies are called, the vassals are called, the banners are called, whatever term you want to use, he manages that and runs it. He's in charge of the armies under the, you know, under the authority of the king. Part of why he had everyone's so afraid of him and part of why he has so much authority is well he has a lot of authority it's it's not uh <laughs> it's very straightforward kud kudak we talked a good bit about him but <laughs> the important thing here is the connection to the cinderella stories now as i mentioned during the cinderella influences a common recurring theme is talking animals so kud kudak is the inversion of that instead of a, instead of having talking animals or animals that talk like people he is a person that talks like animals. Well, it's it's interesting because, like, in the, I think it was like the second paragraph of the chapter, Geralt's taking the bath, and then they shave him. They have the whole shaving thing, and then Geralt gets out, and he, sh you know, like if you've ever had a dog, like a dog gets out of the bathtub, and like you try to dry them off inside the bathtub, and then they shake, and they just get you wet no matter what. That's kind of what Geralt does. We see more and more people, like like Kudkadek is observing people, and he says, "Feast is more akin to a zoo than an inn." Kind of like a little rhyme, you know what I mean? And I thought that was kind of cool, a fun little catch. Let us not pretend we have never heard of such requests, of the law of surprise as old as humanity itself, of the price a man who saves another can demand, of the granting of a seemingly impossible wish. You will give me the first thing that comes to greet you. It might be a dog, you'll say, or a halberdier at the gate, even a mother-in-law, impatient to holler at her son-in-law when he returns home. Or you'll give me what you find at home you don't yet expect. After a long journey, honorable gentleman, and an unexpected return, this could be a lover in the wife's bed. But sometimes it's a child, a child marked out by destiny. The, the law of surprise basically promises ownership of something you already have but don't know about. Um, it's a gamble. It's a dice with destiny. Anything could happen. Um, it could literally be nothing. It could be like, oh, my wife just swept the floor. Like, here's a pile of dirt she just swept outside. Or it could be the wife herself or a child or anything. It's funny that they mention animal too, right? Because yeah. they mention 
It could, and then we have more animal references. Right, exactly. So a child of surprise uh, is, is one of the children who is referred to by the law of surprise. And these children are regarded as selected by destiny. And throughout history, there are a bunch of examples in the story, like Mad Day. Is, I didn't write down all the references, but there's, there's quite a few of them. So people in this world definitely regard this as being a real concept. Obviously, for Geralt, this has um, a very personal reference because he himself was a child of surprise. And that seems to be how witchers are sourced, I guess you could say, because they they tend to be born under the shadow of destiny. Um, so his idea is that he, you know, he will continue this tradition. He says, um, in order to become a witcher, you have to be born in the shadow of destiny. And very few are born like that. That's why there are so few of us. We're, gr we're growing old, dying, without anyone to pass our knowledge, our gifts, onto. We lack successes, and this world is full of evil, which waits for the day none of us are left. So he basically plans to um, continue, you know, the, not only that tradition, but also the tradition of uh, that, that Juni has begun with Rognar, referring to Pavetta. In the real world, I've never heard of this in, in this form. And I think it's actually such a cool concept because it, I love the idea of magical contracts and it's, it's just very clever. I really like it. But the parallel that I did find is a biblical story of Jephthah, which is how I'm going to say it. I'm, I'm actually more <laughs> familiar with the Old Testament. So in my, in my parlance, it's Yiftah who basically vows to God that he will sacrifice the first thing he sees that comes out of his house when he comes home, if he comes home safely from war, and his daughter comes out to greet him because she's so thrilled that he is alive. This is a very dark version of the child surprise and something that I think kind of plays into the idea that this is not necessarily good for the child. You know, if you've read the story, like Siri has a really rough time of it through being a child surprise and a, and a child of destiny. You know, obviously, Calanthe wants Pavetta for her own interests also, but she says that Rognar only told her when he was dying because he knew what a mother whose child is disposed of so recklessly is capable of. And to me, that, that ties in. Like, can you imagine, like, Jephthah, like, telling his wife, like, okay, I have to sacrifice our daughter now. <laughs> like, excuse me? What did you mean? Yeah, read? exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it is, you know, if you're talking about, like, strictly the Witcher thing, this is kind of, you know, mm. those are supposed to be boys. But what is it, like three out of 10 survive the trial of grasses. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So it sort of is a death sentence. If you, yeah. if you, you know, give your child up to be made a witcher. So looks like macrofag says it's huge in Eastern European fairy tales. Like half of the stories have a lot of surprise. And really? So apparently. Oh. Yeah. So that's really informative because, and part of the reason we do these live so we can get takes like that from knowledgeable participants like, uh, like macrofage and, and your munger and other folks who have, who have been giving us advice. This, the princess is such an important archetype in these stories, right? Like, yeah. this, and this is kind of what's driving it too. We see, you know, Siri and all that later, and she's a princess. So we can't deny that. It's a similar theme to the idea of giving your kids away for mm -hmm. political marriages. It's like a, it's it's a promise to give your child away. It's not necessarily magical in the real. Well, it's not magical in the real world, though. It certainly can carry grave social consequences if you break the promise, if not like causing war. It's often why people had wards. Yeah. Yeah, so they knew they could have that person as collateral as a warning to not be aggressive. Yeah, and medieval society also relied a lot on on boys being, and I guess maybe to some extent girls, but like being given to the church as, mm. you know, I mean, partly it was a way so their parents didn't have to feed them. Um, but also, <laughs> yeah. you know, it, it was part of 
you know, promoting that society also that like you have enough children and you give one or two to God. We, we saw a little bit of that in Grain of Truth, actually, where people are giving their kids to Nivellen. Oh, very true. Yeah, you're right. Mm. Uh, to, to help the family to like, well, you go live with him. He'll we'll get rich and the whole family will, will be better for it. Yeah. By the way, none of this is recommended. <laughs> <laughs> we this do not, not endorse. Disclaimer. <laughs> do not do this in modern era. So I have a question to throw out to y'all. This is something that I'm a little, not confused about, but uncertain about. I wonder if Geralt just makes up the, the girl must consent part as an effort to try to make this all happen. Because we don't really see evidence of that later necessarily. Like in his own case, he says that he expresses bitterness much later, not much later, but later, that he never had a choice, that he was made a witcher and he never had a say in it. So there was no consent from him. So I wonder, that's part of where I'm coming from, is if he just was, he expected that Urchin and the others wouldn't know how the law of surprise works, because that's what happens. He brings this up and they're like, well, who are you to say that? Because who are you to to, to know so much about the law of surprise? And Ma that's when Malsack jumps in and says, well, he would know because he is a child of surprise himself. So either Malsack is backing his lie or he doesn't know either. <laughs> and so uh, it's confusing because I'm not sure Mausak would back that lie, but he also wouldn't get it wrong. I think Mausak would understand the law of surprise even better than Geralt would possibly. But maybe not. Maybe not because Geralt, since he lived through it. So that's where a lot of this confusion is. So let me throw it over to you guys and see what you think. So here's my perspective on it. We saw how Geralt tra treated Renfrey, right? He, Geralt is a great observer. And I think a few people have mentioned in chat that he's a great detective. He was monitoring everyone's behavior. He listened to Kalantha's words very closely. And he's basically like, yeah, I'm not going to do this for you. This is how witchers work. So I think that because of the, the, the experiences that Geralt has had throughout his life, he's sympathetic to a lot of different people because he sees how people are treated. Right? He knows that humans can be the worst kind of monsters, that he's been treated like a monster. So I think that... I mean, I mean, just look at, just look at Pavetta's body language. She could barely raise her eyes. That's one thing that Sapkowski really highlights in this chapter, right? And, and, and look at the aggressiveness of Kalantha. Like, Geralt is like, <laughs> yeah. trying to fend her off. You know what I mean? He's like, he's like trying to dodge and weave her <laughs> as much as possible. But do you think that Geralt noticed how Pavetta might have felt in this situation? That's kind of how I feel about it, and that Geralt is a little bit sympathetic. Yeah, that's really interesting. It kind of reminds me of when we were wondering if Stregobor was totally full of it um, oh. last time. I mean, he was full of it anyway. But um, And I mean, they do note that what breaks the curse is not Calanthe, is not um, Pavetta saying yes. It's, it's Calanthe saying yes, which is very, you know, this is something that, I mean, I'm sure... Mr. Sapkowski would probably be like, make up your own damn mind. But I, this is this is like the level of question that I would be very interested to ask him. We covered the lesser evil last time. Guilt is considering Renfrey's level of consent in all of the events. So this is the preceding story. And I think that, I mean, that's part of the reason Geralt was so fiercely defending her body. Right. Like, despite all of the things that happened, I think that Geralt did feel sympathetic about that. And that could, and I, and I find it really interesting that this is the next story that we're covering, right? And some time has passed and Geralt's had time to think about this. This would certainly be something that Geralt would consider.
We still got magic, right, Aziz? So, yeah, let's talk about the our first druid that we meet. There's not a lot of difference between druid and sorcerer. In fact, Kalanthi even calls Mausak sorcerer kind of offhand. It mostly is a cultural personality difference in what they seem to be interested in, because druids are more attuned and concerned with nature, mages with politics and, and power, things like that. So, But as far as the actual magic they can wield... Just like any magic user, they just certain they just seem to fall into they're good at certain things and not other. Like Stragabor is really good with illusions. Your talent, the type of magical talent within certain categories, sort of determines your outlook, but also your personality. So, I wouldn't. I don't think there's a lot of differences in the actual source of power they're tapping into. Arguably, the priests are tapping into the same source of power that the mages and druids are, but they call it the gods. But no one actually knows where it's coming from. So that's a whole other topic. Malsak, of course, comes from Skellige and decides to stay now that he's discovered what's going on with Pavette. He's like, this girl needs some help. and He's going to play Merlin. Too. Yeah. He is very Merlin-esque, eh? Yeah. Merlin-sack. <laughs> <laughs> One little bit that ties into another use of curses. They both hit her simultaneously, Geralt with the sign of Ard and Mausak with a terrible three-staged curse, powerful enough to make the floor melt. The chair on which the princess was standing disintegrated into splinters. Pavetta barely noticed. She hung in the air within a transparent green sphere. Without ceasing to shout, she turned her head towards them and her petite face shrunk into a sinister grimace. Ooh, yeah. quite evocative. <laughs> she, went, she went dark phoenix there. And also where they get, like, series power of Screamo, to quote Honest Trailers. <laughs> <laughs> and then afterwards, we see a little more of his cap- capabilities when Rain, this, this guy needs a doctor, and, and, and Mouse, like, pulls out his wand and is like, why well, call for a doctor? Yeah. <laughs> a Hawthorne wand with a rat's skull on it, which is really cool. That is really cool, and that's the second appearance of Hawthorne. We see that in the first story. It's in the elixir that he drinks before he fights the Striga. So that's, uh, that's neat to see that again. There on the oak table, crumbs, grains of buckwheat, and fragments of lobster shell were moving like ants. They were forming runes, which joined up for a moment into a word, a question. So this is Masak surreptitiously communicating with Geralt while he's talking to Calanthe and Mausek's trying to figure out what's going on. They both feel the, the magic in the room and are like, what is going on here? So what is this word? I, I think it's just like, you good? <laughs> <laughs> you, you good, bruh? You good, bruh? Which is two words, but... You know. <laughs> or like, safe word? Yeah, safe word. <laughs> Pineapple. I thought maybe it would be Spurge. Oh, God. <laughs> We had to give Aziz another opportunity to use that I'm segueing into the herb lore, so, you know, I had to get that in there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, now I'm imagining just, like, the question mark emoji. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a question question mark word, like, Geralt? (laughs) (laughs) Let me just find out who let him into the castle at night. Let me at the ladies-in-waiting you went gathering primroses with. Primroses, damn it. Well, what am I to do with you now? The main point is, though, is the primroses themselves. That is an incredible symbolic resonance for Pavetta herself. They're, a, they're big in Shakespeare. Think of Primrose Everdeen, Katniss's younger sister in Hunger Games. The primroses are often, there's a few different goddesses of love from different pantheons that primroses are sacred to. 
but mostly it's a symbol of youth, femininity, and specifically young and naive love, which is a bullseye here for Pavetta because obviously it's the first person she falls in love with and um, it's a bit naive to... Uh, she's supposed to marry a king or something or a, a lord or something like that. You can see how that fits really well. It also symbolizes internal transition, which for her, I mean, hell, she just exploded with all this power that she probably barely knew she had, if at all. Another symbol is understanding and composing your inner self, which again fits extremely well. That's why Mausak is going to stay to help her, for example. Also pregnancy. Oh yeah, for sure. That's a good call. Eating it can help you get it. It was used to, it was said to, the ability to transport you to get advice from a fairy, which is part of the recurring fairy godmother theme. It taps into that with the Cinderella influence. Primroses physically have what is described as an eye in the center of their petals. That's they called like an it's, it's called an eye, which is really cool because of Pavetta's eyes are stunning and an indication of the magic, the elder blood that's in her. Also, the the conjunction of spheres and the sphere that she is within and uh, transmutes. Perfect. Yeah, you're right. That's a great <laughs> great call. And the the primrose is the first flower that blooms after frost and snow. It's the first one to kind of get going, which also has a little bit of a nod to some of the prophecies that we haven't really discussed yet. But uh, it certainly fits. No. And so that's a lot, right? That's a big deal. And that's, that's why I brought up um, Primrose Everdeen from Hunger Games, because she's also kind of symbolic. A lot of those things, Katniss is very protective of her and sees her as the future of their family and just the future in general. She's a symbol of that. So that's just really neat. Uh, I hadn't, I caught this. That's the piece I caught at like three in the morning last night when I was doing a last minute looking, <laughs> looking around. I was like, oh man, I'm glad we didn't miss this one. This is Aziz messaged us this morning. He's like, I found some more Primrose evidence. <laughs> Aziz gets so, I'm like, oh, and then me and Mikhail are like, oh, Aziz and you're gardening. We love you. Because <laughs> he is gardening. He's looking for answers. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> So a much shorter, shorter connection here is with Angelica. It's mentioned very briefly, which Geralt wipes his face with a tincture of Angelica when he's getting out of the bath. And Angelica it's has to the symbolism after around it. Cleaner. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. It has less on point symbolism here, but it does have some. Uh, there, it's it's associated with sun and fire and you know potency and, and and energy like that, which maybe applies to Geralt somewhat, maybe more to Calanthe. But uh, it's known to be protective of women. That's certainly uh, a big part of this chapter as well. Geralt, you know, wanting trying to yeah. protect Pavetta, um, maybe even more so than Calanthe does, and <laughs> and just women's rights being pushed around and that whole perversion of men coming for young women and things like that. So that's definitely, uh, I think, a back theme here. And his medallion shimmers like the sun when magic in relation. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. It's the, His medallion is as prominent as it ever is in this <laughs> uh, story, for sure. <laughs> We've exited the gardening section and we're entering the funniest moments and i have to start off with this one because we we were all that we were all having our private chat our little meeting that we do before the podcast and i'm like there's like this could kadak is hilarious and he goes brack, brack, roared could kadak suddenly to loud applause Geralt didn't know which animal he was imitating but he didn't want to meet anything like it. And it's funny <laughs> It's funny because we don't really have a monster in this chapter, but, you know, we have Dooney, the Urchion of Erlenwald, and uh, it's just, like, super funny that this is mentioned. It's kind of, a, kind of a little bit of a jab, 
and, and Geralt <laughs> not taking down any monsters really in this chapter. Yeah, so. and and he it's like what monster is he? It's like what animal is he afraid of? I mean, this is a dude who kills monsters for a living. So yet this is something he doesn't want to meet. <laughs> he's just like so bewildered by the sound. So I thought that was funny. It's like oh my god. Everything else he's imitated sounded realistic. It's like, well, if those were realistic, well, what the hell is this one then? This is this must be real too. And maybe and, it's uh, a <laughs> tripoded chicken thing. <laughs> yeah, all the food, all the food references are hilarious. I I can't remember which character does this, but when the guy takes the knife out of the lamb and he finds out that Dooney is or Pravetta has promised to Dooney, he's like super pissed. And there's Sapkowski is just like. And the man took a knife out of the lamb, like like he was like gonna just murder someone. <laughs> he's like, he's... I think that was Rainfarn. Yeah. Rainfarn was the most aggressive of all the, and he's not even a suitor. He was a he was an escorting Windhelm of Atre. He was a twelve year old. That's he was the suitor, and, and Windhelm I don't think speaks the entire but I, chapter. But he does become a character later. But I'm just picturing it in my head. Like the person's expression on their face, and like I don't, I don't know if this ever happens in the show. It might be in the background or something. But I just found it so funny. I just found it so funny that he was like ready, ready <laughs> really to good. use the knife that was in the lamp to, to kill someone. Yeah, I mean, on that same note, I think the physicality of this chapter plays really well into the humor. So we have that this line where Krach and Crate is kind of driving Ace crazy, and with all of his protestations and everything. So he growled, and Ace Tirsach meaningfully showed him a, a clenched fist. Crack growled even louder. And I'm just like, <laughs> I, I can just picture that so well. Just like... <laughs> Shaking his fist like... It's, it's so old-timey and funny, but it so fits Ice's personality because he's so yeah. good. <laughs> Yeah, and it's just like it's very you know like I, I imagine this culture just being like you just beat each other up all the time. How about that one? I wonder if anyone or anything can hold me back. Like, oh come on, sit down, dude. You're... And he winds up on the table, just like spinning around. <laughs> yeah, and, and they're trying to pull the, the a plank off the table to use as a weapon. He's like, right, I'm going to pull this table apart so I can. Hit so you he with tries it. to do that and fails, right? And then Ice just like bashes a chair yeah. into pieces. <laughs> yeah, Ice actually hits someone in the sh- in the show. He hits someone in the in the show version with the chair, and it breaks. Like you know, like in, yeah. like in a cage match. Yeah, someone's pretty similar. Yeah. <laughs> it's like yeah. I also just want to shout out Calanthe's line: "I ought to ask your forgiveness, but I hate doing that because that is Queen." <laughs> <laughs> And then that's followed up with uh, this line. Thank you, your majesty. Thank you, smiled Dooney. You're a wise and generous queen. Of course I am. And beautiful. <laughs> and beautiful. <laughs> Modesty. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. That reminds me of uh, Monty Python, the Holy Grail. And it's like, Arthur, you shall have a quest in these dark times. Like, a quest? Great idea, oh lord. Like, of course it's a good idea. <laughs> well, what about this quote? Uh a roast pheasant with a few striped feathers stuck still in its rump fell from nowhere and thumped him in the back. <laughs> so random. <laughs> well, okay, so less random, I think, is when an enormous head of carp splatters against Geralt's chest. And to me, you know, if you've read further in the series, carp and fish and those things become emotionally significant, which sounds really weird to say, but like, I'm just, I'm just saying that carp is a way to Geralt's heart. He loves fish. <laughs> I will say this chapter is really fishy. This <laughs> <laughs> is a couple of times that's come up, hasn't it? <laughs>
One thing I really liked was Geralt's observation of her, quote, arsenal of smiles. <laughs> <laughs> no pirouettes, Mikal. Mm, no pirouettes. No pirouette counts still. That m- I might have been a little <laughs> bit premature. <laughs> I'm saying that that should be a weekly. It, it gives count. us a reason to bring it up, though. He doesn't. He, yeah, no one fights him. He fights a yes. few guards, but they don't really fight him. <laughs> but yes. he does block another object with his sword. That that does every once in a while happen. It's it's not like a crossbow bolt this time, but yep. it was a fork or something <laughs> coming right from mouse sack. <laughs> <laughs> So yeah, that's going to do it for the pod today. Of course, we want to thank everyone for joining us today. I have a really awesome new feature, Toss a Coin, to your podcasters. And uh, it allows you to pledge either a $1 pledge, a $5 pledge, or a $10 pledge. Of course, if you do want to support, hit that support button. We thank you for that. Give us a rating if you enjoy the podcast. And also review... We have a podcast surprise Facebook group. Want to do a shout out for Ryan Burns and Lauren Spioni. They had brought up some amazing points. We had done a poll in, in a couple of different threads. And that's some of the stuff that we're going to continue to do. We're going to try to talk a little bit more spoilers you know, in, in specific threads so people can avoid them if they don't want to do spoilers and stuff like that. But that's kind of some of the stuff that we're going to do on the group. So if you're interested in more Witcher discussions and what we're discussing on the podcast of surprise, make sure you check us out on Facebook. You can find that in the link in the description. That's going to do it for today, everyone. Thank Thank you. Bye.